Let me say to all of you how grateful I am that you have joined us for this first ever live stream service. Um, I'm grateful to all the folks that have worked diligently to try to put all this together. I know we had some technical difficulties there to begin with. I think it was because so many of you logged on, it crashed our website, but hopefully we've got that fixed and now you've been able to uh, connect. Um, I'm grateful to, to Dave Wiley and to Mike Shiver and to Scott Seabolt, as well as to Stephen Murphy and also to Alex that's always working hard up there uh, for being able to put all this together. And uh, I think that in a, in a place where we're coming to you this morning in a room in which is normally always filled, um, uh, two services every Sunday, and normally this room is completely filled with people to be in it and it, and it be virtually empty is, is strange. And these are, these are strange days indeed. Few of us could have anticipated um, just how quickly things changed over the course of this last week. Um, the potential threat posed by the coronavirus and uh, has caused many, for us, it's just disrupted many things that have been normal for us. Uh, much of life as we know it has been affected um, throughout our state and our country and indeed our world. There have been unprecedented policies that have been put in place, uh, procedures to try to attempt to stop the spread of this virus. Um, and, and like many of you, I wonder just how extensive these measures will be and how long they will last. The truth is none of us really know. Um, which is why we are choosing uh, here at Ivy Creek to show as much caution as we can. Jesus tells us in Matthew, Matthew 10, verse 16, that we are to be as wise as serpents and to be as harmless as doves. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, that we're to walk carefully, not as the unwise do, but as wise. And this is how we want to handle ourselves during this, this time of uncertainty in our country and in our world. And as upsetting and as unsettling as all of this may be, I want to remind you that, that as believers, we still have every reason to be encouraged. You see, even though we are uncertain, even though we are unsure of many things around us, I am confident of this. I am confident that God is not uncertain about anything. I am confident that there is nothing that ever has or ever will surprise him. I am confident that there is no problem beyond which he has the ability to provide a remedy. And I am confident that there is no circumstance that is beyond his control. That's why I believe that even though we may be uncertain, even though we are using caution and even though we are walking as wisely and as carefully as we can, we can still walk confidently. We can still walk courageously. I remind you of the verses that I read to you that were actually preached from this past Sunday morning uh, where Jesus says that we are to follow him. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Down in verse 27 of John chapter 14, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do, you, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then later in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, Jesus says, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And here's the point. You see, as believers, our hope and our confidence and our peace 
rests solely and completely in Jesus Christ. He has promised us that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never abandon us. And yes, we will go through troubles and we will go through tribulations and difficulties and trials, but our hope and our confidence must never to reside in our circumstances. In fact, if, I, right, if it resides in our circumstances, we will always prove to be disappointed. The Bible calls us to have our hope and our confidence in Christ and in Him alone. As the psalmist declares in Psalm 56, verse 3, When I am afraid, I will trust in you. The psalmist also says in Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. In light of that and in light of the troubling and uncertain circumstances that we are facing and in and in light of the fact that as Christians, we firmly declare that our hope is in Jesus and Him alone, then I believe it's appropriate for us on this, this day, this national day of prayer has been, has, has been declared by our president that we go to the Lord in prayer and that we ask Him for the strength and for the wisdom that we need to be able to persevere during these difficult moments and to give all the glory that we have in our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. So right there in your rooms where you are, would you bow with me in prayer as we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, I come before you acknowledging that these truly are uncertain times. And I acknowledge that there are many who are fearful and worried about what tomorrow may bring. But I also want to acknowledge that, that you are God. You are the faithful, sovereign God who is the maker of everything seen and unseen. You are the ruler over all creation. You hold tomorrow and all of our tomorrows in your hand. And because that's who you are, then you are deserving of all of our glory. You are deserving of all of our honor. You are deserving of all of our praise and all of our worship. We declare your greatness today and, and we ask for your peace in the midst of our uncertainty and in the midst of our trouble. Lord, I pray that you would show us mercy. Mercy in, in stopping the spread of this pandemic across our world. I ask that you would spare lives. I pray for our president. I pray for our governor. I pray for others in leadership over our country and our state and our counties and the various municipalities, I pray that you would give them wisdom and guidance as they seek to do what is best and what is right for our benefit. I ask for your favor to rest upon the medical personnel who are working in hospitals and clinics all around us daily and, and, and constantly come into contact with all manner of, of, of contagions. I ask that you protect them and that you help them as they serve those who are sick. I also pray for those who are working tirelessly in laboratories and, and are seeking to find a vaccine and a cure for, for this, that, uh, this virus that is there. I pray that in all these cases that you would protect them and that you would keep them safe. I also pray for wisdom for us. I pray that such a time as this, we would come to be reminded of the fact that life is fragile for all of us. And I pray that you would remind us in our fragile state of just how strong and mighty you are. I pray for those missionaries, 
serving across and around the world, many of whom are in places right now where this virus seems to be doing the most damage. Others are in places where they're concerned about what may take place if this virus gets to them. Father, I know that there's anxiety and that there's fear everywhere, but my prayer is is through all this that you would protect them that are there representing the gospel of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would calm them and that you would assure them of your love and your ultimate control over their circumstances and, and truly over all things. Lastly, your word tells us that in all things we are to give thanks. That command sometimes seems strange to us, Lord. It seems strange to us even in a a time just such as this. It's it's easy for us to thank you when the storm has passed. It's, It's a challenge sometimes for us to thank you when we are in the middle of that storm. Yet that is exactly what I do today because I am confident that you are using this moment in time to refocus the attention of many back to you I believe that you are stripping away all of the things that so many of us have put our confidence and our hope in. And you are once more revealing yourself to be the only one worthy of such confidence and trust. And therefore, I pray that you would continue to use this crisis as a means of drawing all men, women, boys, and girls to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that I come before you this morning. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you there, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of John and to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. I want us to continue this morning in our sermon series that we've been on for a while that's entitled Follow Me. And And as I do this today, I want us to examine, quite frankly, one of my absolute favorite passages in all of the New Testament. The setting for this passage here in John chapter 21 is the Sea of Galilee, and it follows the the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And, And though John tells us that there are seven disciples who have made their trek from Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee, to the Sea of Galilee, and gathered themselves together... There's really one disciple of that seven for which this text actually centers its attention. As you'll recall, Peter was Jesus' disciple who had been very vocal about his willingness to follow Jesus all the way to the cross. Peter had been very outspoken about his willingness to to go with Jesus all the way and die with him. Yet on the night that Jesus was arrested, when when he was questioned about his relationship and his knowledge of Jesus, Peter denied even knowing who Jesus was on three separate occasions. Peter had failed. And it is that failure, really, that hangs in the background of this, of this passage here in John chapter 21. In fact, if you're going to take notes this morning, as we normally do here, I'm, I'm providing you hooks for us to consider as we walk our way through this passage today. And, and so the very first hook, the very first word that I would give you for you to write down to, to think about is the word failure. Failure. Perhaps you can relate to that word. I know I can. Uh, I, I know what it's like to fail. I know what it's like to fail miserably. My guess is, is that all of us can in some ways identify with, with Peter and we can identify with what it means to fail. Unfortunately, we know 
Not only what it's like to disappoint ourselves, we know what it's like to disappoint those that are closest to us, and we also know what it's like to disappoint Jesus. If we are honest with ourselves today, I think all of us know what it's like and what it feels like to be a failure. What I want you to know this morning, however, is that though failure is a very powerful word, forgiveness is even more powerful, and so is the word restoration. We're going to see that in our text today as we move through this passage. Over the the past couple of weeks, we've been examining the rewards of following Jesus. We've looked at part one and part two. Today is going to be part three of the rewards of following Jesus. And we're going to look at this from John chapter 21. And I believe that as we, we work our way through this and we look at Peter's example, we will see that even though he had failed miserably, he was nevertheless forgiven and he was restored and given a purpose in life that surpassed anything that he had ever imagined before. As I mentioned, this is one of my favorite passages. So I'm going to read it, beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 21, down, down through verse 22. Hear the word of God this morning. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter... Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, well, we're going with you also. And they went out immediately, got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you caught any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and he plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in a little boat For they were not far from land, about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. 
But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. What I want to direct your attention to this morning is back to how this whole chapter begins. Back, back in verse 1, John takes great pains to tell us that Jesus reveals himself or, or shows himself once again to his disciples after his resurrection. And, and this time he does so by the Sea of Tiberias or, or as is otherwise known, the Sea of Galilee. And the reason that the disciples were back in Galilee in the northern part of Israel was because the Lord had instructed them, according to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, that they should go to the mountain in Galilee and wait there for him to come to them once again. And so having arrived in Galilee, Peter, as well as these other disciples, were there waiting on the Lord to reappear to them again for the third time. And so Peter decides he's going to go fishing. Now, fishing, as you probably know, had been Peter's profession prior to coming and following the Lord Jesus. So he's back here in the region of Galilee, and, and, and maybe it was the call of the boat. Maybe it was the, the sound of the waves lapping against the shore. Maybe it was the smell of fish. We don't know. Probably it had to do with the rumbling of his stomach and the fact that he was hungry. Peter decides that he is going to go fishing. And according to John, his buddies must have said to him, that's a good idea, Peter. We will go with you. Now, now some scholars have criticized Peter for what he did. And they've insinuated that he abandoned the mission that Jesus had given him in order to return to the profession of fishing. I personally don't take that view. After all, he, along with the others, had, had traveled from Jerusalem to Galilee where Jesus had sent them. And having traveled to Israel myself back in January, I can attest to just how far a journey that would have been to go from Jerusalem all the way to the Sea of Galilee on foot through that rocky terrain. In other words, that was not just a, a quick trip right around the corner. It was probably a, a trip that took weeks for them to make, especially when, when you consider all that would have been involved in that. I understand that their being there in Galilee was really more than an act of disobedience, was actually an act of obedience to Christ. And furthermore, I, just because they went fishing, I, I don't believe that that means that Peter was abandoning his call to follow Jesus. Rather, as they waited on Jesus to reappear, they attempted to use the skills that they had already had in their lives as fishermen in order to feed themselves. So you see, the real problem here was not that these disciples had gone fishing. The, the text reveals the real problem. The real problem is they'd gone fishing and hadn't caught any fish. Then we read that Jesus, who appears to them as a, as a stranger on the shore, he calls out to these disciples and he says, children or, or lads or boys, hey, have you caught any fish? And they answer him, no. So Jesus, even though they don't know it's Jesus, he tells them, well, why don't you throw your nets out onto, off of the right side of the boat and, and you'll catch some fish. Now, that just makes perfect sense to me that Jesus would say, throw the net 
on the right side of the boat. I would say to you, to these professional fishermen, that statement probably would have made no sense at all. I can just kind of hear them saying to themselves, you know, we're out here in the middle of this boat and, and we got, you know, what difference does it make? What side of the boat that we throw our nets out on? And by the way, who is this stranger and who does he think he is? Well, when this stranger is none other than the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and when it is him who gives you instructions, well, I would suggest to you that it makes all the difference in the world what side of the boat that you throw your nets over. Peter and the others are just about to find that out. Who knows what they said among themselves, but they, they do as they're told. And, and suddenly, John says in verse 6 that they were not able to draw the net in because of the multitude of fish. What fascinates me is that the attention of the fishermen in this particular instance draws away from the huge catch that they had just made and instead turns toward the stranger who gave them the instruction from the shore. John suddenly speaks up. He looks back and he speaks up and he says, he recognizes the stranger and he says to, to Peter, it is the Lord. Peter, upon hearing that from John, immediately gets up in the boat, puts on his outer garment, plunges himself into the sea and begins swimming to shore. And I want you to know that's always been something of an unnerving scene for me. Yet it's also very beautiful. You see, as we noted at the beginning, Peter had failed himself and he had failed the Lord. Yet here we see that he couldn't get to Jesus fast enough. Even though he had so much to be ashamed of, he had so much to be embarrassed about, instead of, instead of putting distance between himself and Jesus, he dove into the water and swam as quickly as he could, what most believe to be just about 100 yards so that he could get to Christ. He could not wait to get to Jesus. And such a scene is unnerving to me, honestly. Because for many of us, when we fail, and when we sin, and when we tend to do the opposite of what the Lord wants us to do, we also tend to do the opposite of what Peter did. We tend to put as much distance between us and Jesus as we possibly can. But based upon what we see here, let me say this to you. If you have failed, the very last thing in the world that you need to do is to stay distant from the Lord. You don't need to hide and you don't need to tell yourself that, that Christ doesn't want to be near you and, and that because you failed, you're some sort of broken piece of clay that can't be used anymore. No, like Peter, you should run to the Lord's open and forgiving arms just as quickly as you, as you can. Now, Peter didn't run. He swam. But the rest of his disciples, they had to make their way back on the boat without him, and they had to do so carrying this large this large catch of fish. The Bible says there was 153 large fish in that, in that net, and that in itself is a miracle, but then the fact that the net didn't break is presented for us as being a miracle. But when they reached the shore, notice what they found. They found a fire of coals that had been built there. I think it's worth pointing out that the only other time that that phrase, that, that idea of a fire of coals is mentioned is back in John chapter 18, verse 8, where John recounts the fact that Peter stood warming his hands by the fire as people asked him about his relationship to Jesus. 
Of course, we know that as he stood next to that fire, warming his hands and warming his body, Peter steadfastly denied knowing the Lord. And therefore, the, the first fire that John tells us about in chapter 18 serves as the backdrop for Peter's failure. But here in chapter 21, the beauty of this passage in which Peter stands next to a crackling fire, warming his hands, all the while his, his body dripping from the water of the Sea of Galilee, what we see here is that the second fire serves as the backdrop for Peter's forgiveness. In fact, that's the next word. That's the next hook word of this passage. If you're keeping notes, the second word is forgiveness. Jesus tells us that his disciples came and, and they brought some of the fish that they had, they had caught and they added it that to, to what was already cooking on the roasting fire. And, and then Jesus says, come and eat breakfast. And it is that breakfast that sets the stage for what's about to take place and for the restoration of Peter. In fact, though the other disciples are still present, the, the focus of this text narrows to the conversation that begins to take place between Jesus and Peter. And truthfully, this is where, where all of us who have ever sinned and, and all of us who've ever messed up, all of us who have ever failed and disappointed our Savior, this is where we really need to stop and pay attention. Because you see, what I want you to do to investigate, if we're going to consider what are the rewards of following Jesus, then we have to consider what happens here. Because we've considered Peter's failure, we've noted the forgiveness that he's received, which is very quickly followed by a restoration of the third word that I have for you there, on your outline, it's a restoration of fellowship. A restoration of fellowship. Notice that Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And in other words, he's saying, Jesus is asking him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than the rest of the disciples do? Remember, it had been Peter who had told Jesus that even though all else might fail him, he would never fail him. Peter had confidently declared I will lay down my life for your sake. But he didn't. Instead, when the going got rough, Peter denied even knowing who Jesus was. So, so Jesus asked him, Simon, do you love me? Do you really love me? Many have made much over the differences in the word love in the Greek that's used there. Um, Jesus uses the word for a verbal form of the word agape which is really considered to be the highest love in, in Greek. Peter uses the verb form of the word phileo, from which we get our name of a city, Philadelphia. It means brotherly love. I personally believe that too much is made of the difference between those two Greek words, particularly as they're translated into English. In John's gospel, the word agape and the word phileo, he uses them interchangeably all throughout the gospel. And so, as I understand it, there's no real reason for us to differentiate between what Jesus is asking and what Peter is responding other than just stylistic differences in the way John wrote his gospel. In effect, I believe it's Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these? And Peter responds, Lord, you know the answer to that question. You know that I love you. And three times, Jesus asks this question. And, and upon the third time, John tells us that Peter is grieved. And the reason why he's grieved is obviously these three questions regarding Peter's love for his, and devotion for, for Jesus are designed to remind him of his point of greatest failure. It's to remind him of the three times that he had denied the Lord. And maybe that seems like a cruel thing for Jesus to do. I mean, here Peter is 
being questioned in this way in front of these other disciples who sat there with him. But I believe that rather than serving to embarrass Peter, the Lord is actually using these questions in order to restore Peter. You see, Peter had publicly denied the Lord. Now Jesus is giving him the opportunity to publicly declare his love for the Lord. And I believe that's why this interchange is so important. You see, if the Lord had not dealt with Peter's betrayal, both Peter and the others would have continued to think that he was somehow inferior and unworthy. Instead, because of the way that Jesus not only forgave Peter, but publicly restored him, both Peter and the others would know from this point forward that Peter's past was in his past and that the Lord had himself commissioned Peter to further service. You see, not only did Jesus ask Peter if he loved him, what is of great importance is what Jesus tells Peter that his love requires. He tells him, look, if you love me, then feed my lambs. In other words, Peter's love for Jesus and his restored fellowship with the Lord were to be displayed in Peter's pastoral care for the Lord's flock. In fact, all three times following Peter's affirmation of his love for Jesus, the Lord says to him, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter's commission was to serve Christ by taking care of Christ's sheep. What we come to realize is that as one who had been forgiven and been restored to fellowship, Peter was given the tremendous responsibility of pastoring people. In other words, he was given a purpose that went beyond the routine of life. But it didn't stop there. Notice what Jesus tells him in verse 18. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And then John goes on to interpret what Jesus says there and what he means. He he spoke signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. That brings me to the fourth point. The fourth hook on your your passage this morning is this. It's following. Following. As I said, John's cryptic words were, you're going to stretch out your hands and another's going to gird you. These were Jesus' cryptic ways of forecasting how Peter's life would end. And it would end being stretched out on a cross just as his had been. Even so, Jesus said to Peter, Follow me. And Peter did. In fact, he lived the next 30 years of his life with that prediction hanging over his head until he himself was killed by Nero, crucified at his hands, upside down at Peter's own request because he did not believe himself to be worthy of being crucified in the exact same manner as Jesus had been. So here's what I want you to know. From this point here on the shore of the Sea of Galilee forward, Peter was willing to live a life of sacrifice for the glory of God by following Jesus. There's one last thing that I want to bring to your attention from this passage, however. Notice, Notice that after Jesus tells Peter to follow him, Peter turns around and he looks at John and he asks, he says, well, what about him, Jesus? You've just just given me some very ominous news with regard to what my future is going to hold. What's going to happen to John? Jesus immediately turned and rebuked Peter by saying to him in verse 22, if I will or if I desire, 
that he remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. The last hook that I would give you this morning, the last point on your outline would be this. It would be the word focus. Focus. The warning that is inherent in this verse is that in following Jesus, we must keep our eyes on him and on the path that he is leading us down. We must resist the temptation to look at at, at others in jealousy or, or in a sense of pride and superiority with regard to the ministry to which Christ is leading them. I read an illustration just this week about a pastor, and he was speaking about how he had been reading an autobiography about the famous British preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And he was so inspired by what he had read in that autobiography that, that he prayed, Lord, bless my ministry like you blessed Spurgeon's. But as soon as the man prayed that prayer, the Lord put in his mind the question, well, which Spurgeon? Charles or John? You see, John Spurgeon was Charles's father. He too was a godly and faithful pastor, but he would have lived and died in obscurity except for the fact that he had a very famous son. And the pastor's point was simply this. He says the famous Charles was plagued by, by health issues and problems most of his life, and he only lived to be 57 years old. Whereas his obscure father, John, outlived his son and lived to be 91. But God used both men. The pastor went on to say this, The Lord was saying to me, Your job is to be as faithful as John Spurgeon. My prerogative is to use you as I see fit. Learn all you can from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, but if I want to use you as I used his father, John Spurgeon, that's my business. Here's what I think we should take away from what Jesus says to Peter and what we need to place into our lives is that the Lord calls us to follow him. And when he does, he calls us to focus our attention on him, not on others. Our calling, our ministry, our mission is not measured by comparing ourselves to others. It will be measured by how faithful we are in following Jesus in the path that he leads us. So when we look back across this passage, which I've already said multiple times is one of my favorites in all the New Testament, when we take everything to kind of together that we've looked at this morning in consideration, what we realize is that the failures of your past do not disqualify you from the hope of a bright future glorifying God. And the reason that is the case is because Christ forgives and he restores and he gives purpose in living. In fact, let me state for you my sermon in a sentence this morning. It's this. Though you may have failed miserably, when you look only to Jesus and follow him, you can be forgiven and have the focus of your life and your fellowship with him restored. Now maybe you can understand why John 21 is just such an important passage for me. It's such a beautiful, hope-filled passage especially for those of us like me who have failed so miserably in their lives and in their past. So what conclusions can we draw from such, such truth? What, what can we, how can we apply this as men, women, boys, and girls living in today's world? How can we, how can we go on from, from having disappointed ourselves and others 
into a life that brings glory to God? Well, the first thing that I would say is you need to recognize this. The God who knows the the worst about you loves you anyway. The one who knows the worst about you still loves you. Jesus knew what Peter would do before Peter did it. And yet he went to the cross for Peter anyway. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans 5 verse 8, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, what was true for Peter is also true for you. And it's true for me. When we fail, we don't have to hide in shame from God. He knows you. He knows everything about you and He loves you anyway. He loves you enough to die on the cross in your place so that you might be forgiven. Furthermore, understand this. This passage reminds us that no matter how far you've fallen, Jesus can and will restore you. Peter had denied him, but Jesus well, Jesus still cooked breakfast for him right there by the Sea of Galilee. And he invited him to come eat with him. He invited him to come have fellowship with him. No matter what sin may have come into your life, the Savior who willingly went to the cross and died in your place still wants you to come to him, to sit down with him and enjoy his fellowship. But you should also recognize that things will never be the same. In fact, Jesus has a a purpose and he has a mission specifically designed for you. Yes, Peter had failed miserably, but here in John 21, Peter was commissioned by Christ to pastor his sheep and to feed them from the very word of God. He may be calling some of you to that very thing, or for some of you, he may simply be calling you to be the father or the mother that you need to be to shepherd the hearts of your children. He may be calling you to become a greater witness for him in your workplace or among your friends. What the Lord's specific calling on your life is, I do not know. But what I do know is that the Lord forgives and he restores in order that we may be obedient in our service of him. As one has put it, he did not save us to simply sit and soak. He saved us so that we can serve. So once again, we've heard Jesus utter these words that we've been watching him all the way through the New Testament utter to follow me. Friends, you and I have been called to that same steadfast pursuit of the resurrected Christ that Peter called him to follow as well. He calls us to bring glory to God regardless of the cost and regardless of the sacrifice. Those who have been forgiven by him must seek to bring him glory and follow him. Perhaps Perhaps where you sit this morning, you find yourself, and if you're honest, you say, you know, I don't really have a personal relationship with Jesus. Perhaps you've never come to him in repentance of your sins and asked him to forgive you. What I want you to know is that he invites you to do that. If If you will humble yourself before him, you will find mercy. You will also find grace. You will find that amazing, saving grace that he alone bring. I hope that you will do that. I hope that if we can help you in any way, you will contact us here at Ivy Creek. We would be glad to pray with you, be glad to talk with you further about what it means to be a follower of Christ. That would be our goal. We would love to do that. Though you may have failed miserably when you look only to Jesus and follow him, you can be forgiven and you can have the focus of your life and your fellowship with him restored. Brothers and sisters, 
This is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for this day. This is a strange day indeed. And yet, when we go to your word and we study it, we are reminded that you are one who has come from heaven to earth to shrink the distance and to bridge the gap between sinners like me and holy God. And you did that, Lord Jesus, by dying on the cross and by giving yourself sacrificially in my place and in the place of all sinners who will come before you and confess their sin and place their trust in you. So my prayer today, my prayer is that you would comfort our hearts with the powerful message of the gospel. For those of us that are believers and that our confidence is in you, then I pray that you would would continue to affirm that confidence in us and and call us to, to continue to realize that there's nothing else in this world for which we ought to give our lives for and nothing else that we need to place our hope in save for you and you alone. I pray for those that may not know you and have that relationship with you. I ask for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to to rest upon them, to draw them to you into a relationship with you. I pray that they would come to understand that they are sinners in need of a Savior and that you and you alone can provide them with the salvation that they so desperately need. I pray that you would bring that conviction and that humility would follow. Lord, that you'd be able to lift, lift them up and give them the blessings that you desire to give. Continue to bless us this week as we continue to figure out what's the new normal in our society. And Father, we pray that things will come back to normal. But Lord, I pray that we would never come back to normal of putting our faith in anything else besides you. So do what you would desire to do and help us to follow you because this is our desire. We pray these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.